Well, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Royal College of Surgeons and to the fourth lecture in our series um, from Vesalius to Virtual Reality. Um, it's really nice to see a packed audience here this evening for what I know is going to be an excellent um, lecture from our director, Simon Chaplin. Um, before we start, um, could I ask you, obviously, to turn off any phones or pages that you have with you? Um, and also, just to say, um, in case of a, an emergency and the fire alarm being sounded, there are three exits out of the, uh, the room, the two on the, uh, to my right here, and actually four, sorry, two to the left. Um, if you just follow the instructions of myself or my colleagues from the museum, and we'll make sure that you um, are safely evacuated from the building. Thank you. So this evening's lecture, The Dread Table Public Dissection at Surgeons Hall, um, it's going to be delivered by um, our museum director and the director of museums and special collections here, Simon Chaplin. Um, Simon studied natural sciences at the University of Cambridge. He then went on to work at the Science Museum and came here in the late 90s, most recently heading up the team of um, the curatorial staff who have been responsible for the refurbishment of the Hunterian Museum, which I hope many of you have had a chance to see this evening. So without any uh, further things to say on my behalf, I'd like to hand over to Simon to give this, night, this evening's lecture. Thank you. Thank you, Jane. It's really exciting. I normally give the introductions to the lectures, and then someone else stands up and gives a lecture, and here I am. It's my big chance. Right, let us begin. 4th of October, 1759. John Tate, Master of Anatomy at the Company of Surgeons in London, commences a series of three public lectures over the body of the murderer, Richard Lamb. Tate was under no illusions as to the nature of his audience. Curiosity more than improvement has, I am persuaded, drawn the greater part of this audience together, and though such as come here from mere curiosity will reap little benefit from the view of the dissected subject, yet that their time here not be wholly thrown away, I would wish them to consider the crime which has occasioned their presence. Let, therefore, the anatomical table in the surgeon's theatre be a preacher to all this audience, and should their passions run high and the voice of reason and religion be forgotten, may this dread table present itself to their view. My talk tonight is about the dread table and its forgotten place in the history of anatomy. The period of my talk, which is roughly 1745 to 1800, has been described as the lost half-century in the history of the Surgeons Corporation. It's a period from the dissolution of the Company of Barber Surgeons, that grand institution which dated back to the 1540s, and the foundation of the Royal College of Surgeons in 1800. Now, as we'll see this evening, there are good reasons why the work of the Company of Surgeons, a corporation that flourished in this period, has been overlooked. For medical historians, the period is generally characterized as one of private anatomy, with the work of people like William and John Hunter, private teachers working in their own homes, giving classes in dissection, not in formal institutions, in hospitals or in universities or medical schools, but in very private, domestic, commercial premises. And so late 18th century London is seen as the era of private anatomy and not public anatomy. 
And it was private anatomy, this practice of dissection, that gave London its great status as the center for medical teaching in the late 18th century, eclipsing its rivals in Paris, Leiden, and Edinburgh. Nevertheless, aside from the hunters and their work, there is, I think, a fascinating story to be told about the forgotten fate of murderers and the morbid fascination of Londoners with sights of gruesome horror. It's the tale of a practice which, as we shall see, did very little to advance the cause of medical science and which almost destroyed the company of surgeons as a medical corporation. It's the story of the dread table and the culture of public dissection in Georgian London. So I'm going to begin by setting the scene. Now, some of you have been to earlier lectures in this series and already know of the great anatomical renaissance of the 16th century and of the culture of public dissection, normally performed on the bodies of criminals, which grew up around it. Here we have uh, Andreas Vesalius, the frontispiece to his Fabrica, that great work of 1543, depicting the brash young anatomist at the center of a carnivalesque uh, scene. That's a... Uh, something that the historian Andrew Cunningham, who gave the first lecture in this series, has described as both a secular ceremony and also a sacred ritual. And it was the chance, on the one hand, for the individual to know thyself, to discover the wisdom of God in a dissected body, but also a chance, particularly in the case of Vesalius, for the anatomist to show off to a public audience and to establish their reputation. And the idea of dissection as both revelation and revelry was not limited to the Catholic south of Europe. In 17th century Holland, the theatres of Amsterdam and Leiden, for example, were public venues in which dissection was not only done, again normally on the bodies of criminals, but it was also seen to be done. Now, in London... Dissection was performed at two places, the College of Physicians, founded in 1518, and the Company of Barber Surgeons, founded in 1540. Both of them had rather grand anatomical theatres where they performed formal dissections, giving lectures over the bodies of criminals received from the gallows at Tyburn, received under the various royal charters which the two corporations had been granted. And this is a dissection at the Barber Surgeons Company in the 1660s. The dissections, certainly at the Barber Surgeons Company, were quite uh, grand occasions. Not only was there a dissection and a lecture read, but perhaps the best bit was the feast afterwards. It was the highlight of the social calendar for the company. So they spend a little bit on getting the body and a bit on paying the anatomist to give the lecture, a bit on cleaning up afterwards, and a fortune on venison and pies and wine so they could get stinking drunk and stuff themselves at the end of it all. So very much a social occasion. The lectures weren't open to a general public audience, but the members of the Barber Surgeons Company could invite people along. So they'd invite their friends along, not just to witness the lecture, but also to attend the feast afterwards. And this was the case right through until the early part of the 18th century. However, by the 1730s, there were problems with this culture of dissection at surgeon, Barber Surgeons Hall and the College of Physicians. Uh, in particular, the crowds that attended the executions at Tyburn were making life rather difficult. 
In the 1730s, the College of Physicians, physicians, by the way, are a lily-livered lot, uh, not very robust, and as a result, they didn't like fighting the crowd to get hold of bodies. They gave up their lectures in the 1730s. After that, their lectures were purely academic. They didn't use bodies for dissection. Surgeons, barber surgeons being rather more robust, uh, carried on, but even they had problems. They wrote to the mayor in 1739 complaining about the numbers of riotous and disorderly persons who have frequently assembled at the place of execution and with open violence forced the dead bodies from your petitioner's beadles. These poor beadles were being smashed about and the crowd would run off with the corpses. Still a lot of opposition to dissection in the early part of the 18th century. And one of the reasons was that there were no criteria for the bodies that the company of barber surgeons or the College of Physicians received. It was pure luck. They would just take their chance and take whoever they could. And of course, in the 18th century, you could be hanged for all manner of crimes, many quite trivial by today's standards. And so I think in the eyes of the crowd, at least, quite often the perceived punishment of dissection was wholly disproportionate to any crime that might have been committed. And of course, there still is very popular suspicion of dissection as desecration of a body. Not really a strong religious view, but very much part of popular culture, particularly amongst the poor in 18th century London. Now, the company of barber surgeons struggled on until 1745, when the growing tension between the surgeons and the barbers, not least over the right to conduct private dissections outside the company's hall, resulted in a rather messy divorce. And this is an eyewitness view of the divorce of the barbers and the surgeons. And as a result of this, a separate, independent company of surgeons was formed. One consequence of the split was the immediate cessation of all public dissections. And for many historians, 1745, the split of the barbers and the surgeons, the formation of the company of surgeons, marks the end point of public dissection in London. This was true for a bit, for about seven years. There was a hiatus when the new company of surgeons wasn't giving any dissections. As the junior partners in the marriage with the barbers, when they divorced, the surgeons had been left without any property. So the barbers got the hall. I'm not quite sure what the barbers did with the dissecting theatre, but they got the dissecting theatre. The surgeons didn't have anywhere to move into. They lodged for a while at Stationers Hall. For some reason, the stationers don't seem to have been terribly keen to allow dissection in their hall. There doesn't seem to be any great desire on the part of the surgeons either. There's nothing in the minutes of the Court of Assistance to suggest that the lack of lectures or dissections was giving them any concern. And in fact, the resumption of dissection at the company of surgeons appears to have taken people rather by surprise. The surgeons built themselves a very nice hall on a site in the Old Bailey, conveniently close to the Sessions House and Newgate Prison. It had a dissection theatre. It was finished in 1751. No one seems to have been terribly concerned about that. There was no move to conduct any lectures in there in 1751, although the company did move back in and have their meetings there. And it was only the following year, 1752, that the hand of the company was forced. And on 30th of June, 1752, Thomas Wilford, 
a pauper of Fulham, was tried at the Old Bailey and was found guilty of murdering his 17-year-old wife, Sarah. The judge's sentence carried a novel twist. Thomas Wilford, you stand convicted of the horrid and unnatural crime of murdering your wife. This court doth adjudge that you be taken back to the place whence you came and there hanged by the neck until dead, after which your body is to be publicly dissected and anatomized, agreeable to an act of parliament. And Thomas Wilford thus becomes the first victim of the Murder Act of 1752, a statute which added to the capital penalty for that most horrid crime of murder a further terror or peculiar mark. Henceforth, the bodies of murderers would be taken to the company of surgeons in London to be publicly dissected. And the act was calculated to play to this popular fear of dissection. The idea was that dissection would strike terror into the hearts of the population and stop them murdering each other. Don't know how effective it was. As we shall see, there was some criticism of the Murder Act. Whatever the reasons for it, it doesn't seem to have been something that the company actively lobbied for. In fact, Wilford's trial took them rather by surprise. It was only as he was standing in court that the Court of Assistants met to think what they might do if he was actually sentenced and they were forced to carry out a dissection. The theatre was dusted down, mops, buckets were bought, sawdust was spread, knives were sharpened, and Wilford's corpse was eventually brought to the hall, the first, it transpires, of many. Now, uncovering the nature and extent of these dissections has required a bit of uh, detective work. Um, most of the minutes of the company's court of assistance are silent on the practice of dissections. They don't habitually record when lectures or dissections were carried out. There are some account books from the company of surgeons, and they do include entries, payments for bringing bodies, payments to the dissectors, payments for cleaning up afterwards. And from these, you start to get some sense of what was done. However, tracing all of the dissections carried out at Surgeons Hall requires a bit of piecing together. And in particular, looking at things like the Newgate Calendar, this very popular series of accounts, supposedly often the last words of criminals, which were printed and recirculated in various different forms throughout the 18th and early 19th century. And many of the accounts contain descriptions of murderers, other criminals being sent for dissection. So that's one source of information. We have newspaper accounts. This is a notice in the Times of the execution of John Hogan saying his body being cut down was conveyed in a cart to Newgate and from thence to Surgeon's Hall, where it will this day be dissected and exposed to the public view as usual. So this is another source of evidence we can use. And of course, sometimes the lectures or the dissections were formally advertised in the newspapers. So by looking at a list of everyone who was executed for murder in London between 1752 and the end of the 18th century, and matching them against the newspaper reports and the company's account books and the minutes, you can start to get a sense for who was actually dissected. Some of them were very famous figures, people like Lawrence Shirley, the fourth Earl Ferrers, who was executed for the murder of his servant in 1760, his body was taken to Surgeon's Hall and exhibited for show. 
Elizabeth Brownrigg, executed for torture and the murder of a female servant in 1767. Very notorious case, again, dissected and exhibited, much written about in the papers. The bodies which were dissected, the bodies of murderers, came from at least three different sites. Up until 1783, it was Tyburn, at the west end of London, where the gallows had traditionally stood, the Tyburn tree. From 1783, the executions were moved to Newgate, outside the prison in the Old Bailey. The first execution was carried out there in 1783, and that became the site for formal, formal executions throughout the rest of the 18th century. And there were also executions carried out at Execution Dock in Wapping. These were executions carried out under the purview of the Admiralty Session. So murder on the high seas was punished at Execution Dock. And then we have people like John Williamson, who was hanged at Moorfield. Sometimes criminals, particularly murderers, it turns out, could be hanged opposite the site of their crime somewhere else in London. So these executions took place all over the place, and the bodies were being brought back to Surgeon's Hall for dissection. How many of them were there? Well, between 1752 and 1800, there were 139 executions for murder in London. Of these, at least 117 bodies were brought to Surgeon's Hall and dissected and exposed to the public view. And on these, 39 lectures were read. So lecturing was actually quite infrequent, but the dissection and exposure of the dissected bodies of murderers was relatively common. Not everyone who was executed for murder ended up being dissected. The artist Theodore Gardell, for example, who was executed for the murder of his landlady in 1767. You can see him here with the leg of his landlady. He's happily burning the rest. A particularly heinous crime was hanged in chains opposite the site of his crime. Hanging in chains was considered an alternative punishment to dissection, and that was used quite frequently for murderers. Sometimes the punishments could be even more elaborate. Uh, when Francis Stern, John Dempsey, and William O'Dell were convicted of murder in September 1760, Dempsey was dissected and lectured upon, O'Dell was hanged in chains at the site of his crime, and Stern, who committed suicide in prison, was dissected, had a stake put through his heart, and was buried at the crossroads. So there's a kind of hierarchy of different punishments that could be applied, and dissection slotted neatly into this hierarchy. Not all of those bodies that were dissected ended up being dissected at Surgeon's Hall. And we have the case of Benjamin Harley, either Benjamin Harley or Thomas Henman. We're not entirely sure which. Both of them were smugglers, and they were executed in 1776 for the murder of an exciseman. And apparently, when their bodies were brought into the hall, the anatomist was so excited about the muscles of one of the two that he asked for the body to be given to the Royal Academy to be prepared as an écorché cast, which is what you can see here, a flayed cast. And the cast, or a copy of it, is still preserved in the Royal Academy and is still known as Smugglerius uh, after the origins of the body. Now, this is the site at which most of the bodies were dissected, Surgeon's Hall in the Old Bailey. 
And this is the place which forms a setting for the public dissections, which I'm going to talk about in the rest of this lecture. And this is the only scene we have depicting the interior of the hall with a body laid out for dissection. This is the only piece of documentary evidence. We have some architectural plans, but this is the only view of the interior of Surgeon's Hall. There is, of course, the very famous engraving by William Hogarth, plate four of the four stages of cruelty, the reward of cruelty. But this was published in 1751, the year before the company of surgeons began its dissections. And the hall it shows is a composite one. It's loosely based on the College of Physicians and the company of barber surgeons. And the scene is very much not a piece of documentary evidence. It is, however, a very important piece of evidence for how dissection was perceived in the 18th century, and particularly the attitude of the surgeons shown there. Horace Walpole famously commented that how delicate or superior is Hogarth's satire when he intimates in the College of Physicians and Surgeons, this fictional scene that presided at a dissection, how the legal habitude of viewing shocking scenes hardens the human mind and renders it unfeeling. And the same kind of criticism that the sight of dissection hardened the mind and rendered it unfeeling is one that was leveled at the dissections at Surgeon's Hall throughout the second half of the 18th century, often by people using this particular print as a mechanism for criticizing what was actually going on in the hall. The question we have to ask to begin with, I suppose, is what was the medical value of these dissections? Now, by and large, it does not appear to have been terribly great. But it was not from want of trying on the part of the company of surgeons. When they began in 1752, they made a very astute move. They selected as their inaugural masters of anatomy two very eminent anatomists, Percival Pott and William Hunter, both surgeons, both members of the company. William Hunter in particular was the brash young Turk of London anatomy. He was the one who'd carved out this career for himself as a private teacher in the aftermath of the split of the Barber Surgeons Company. And Percival Pott was also a successful teacher working at St. Bartholomew's Hospital. So these two were certainly very competent to act as the masters of anatomy. However, after that, matters seemed to go downhill. Following the selection of Pott and Hunter, the subsequent choice of masters, wardens, and stewards of anatomy, the different classes of uh, officer who served the dissections was done by rote. You were simply elected in order of seniority. So there was no regard paid to how competent you might have been as an anatomist. And it's fairly clear that lots of those people who were called upon to serve weren't very good at what they were trying to do. And the minutes of the company include endless names of surgeons who paid a fine rather than actually serve their term of office. You could pay quite a hefty fine. It became quite a lucrative source of income for the company of surgeons, extracting these fines from surgeons who didn't want to serve in office. Some surgeons tried to get out of it in other ways, to try and make up excuses as to why they couldn't do the job. In 1759, for example, Robert Pell asked to be excused service. He claimed that if he attempted it, he should make a ridiculous figure and bring disgrace upon the company. 
his request was refused. He had to serve anyway. No matter that he wasn't a very good anatomist, he still had to serve in office. There were other things that I think evidenced some, I don't know, lackadaisical attitude on the part of the company. In September 1760, for example, the lectures were cancelled on account of the weather because it was too warm. Now, you might think this is quite a valid reason for not giving a lecture if the body was going to decompose too quickly, but the newspapers pointed out it was a frivolous pretense. Was there, they wondered, some difference in the climate between the Old Bailey, where the company of Surgeons Hall was, and Litchfield Street, where William Hunter was giving his private lectures, or, the, or, the, or Southwark, where William Bayford was giving lectures, because both of them managed to carry on without stopping because of the heat. So the company of surgeons were criticized as being rather dilatory in their attitude towards the conduct of lectures, at least. And it's no wonder that when Tate was reading his lecture in 1759, preaching about the dread table to his public audience, Someone like William Shippen, a young medical student who'd come over from America to study anatomy in London, should choose instead to spend his day studying in William and John's anatomy school, which at that time was in Covent Garden. His diary records he spent the entire day in the dissecting room, not just watching someone carry out a dissection, but actually doing a dissection himself. And then spent the evening, he said, talking anatomy with John Hunter. So for students like Ship and the lectures at Surgeons Hall were really rather irrelevant. Not least because they were quite irregular. If we look at the numbers of executions for murder carried out in London over the period, you can see there were some years when as many as eight murderers were, were executed and an ample supply of bodies was provided. Other years where there was only one or sometimes none. And, of course, often these bodies came at inconvenient times. Bodies were executed at the ends of the sessions. With the Murder Act, execution was carried out immediately after the sentence. So the following day, following Monday after the sentence was passed, the execution would be carried out. There was no time to prepare. So unless you were keeping an eye on the courts and knew that a body was coming up, you'd have no time to start getting the theatre ready and to start placing adverts. Uh, on top of this, quite often, people were being tried for the same crime. So you might have four or five people being hanged at once for the same crime of murder. And of course, only one body could be used for a dissection. So this was one problem that the company faced. Now, they did make some improvements over the course of their history. In the 1760s, they abolished the old system of electing the masters of anatomy simply on seniority, and they decided to appoint a professor of anatomy, who was generally a practiced private teacher of anatomy. And we have to assume after that point that the lectures became rather better in quality. But the infrequency of the lectures was still a problem. If you compare the lectures that were given at Surgeons Hall, generally um, rotating between a lecture on the viscera, on the internal organs, and a lecture on the muscles, maybe one lecture on each given each year, each lecture conducted over the course of three days, a couple of hours each day, and then you compare that with the course taught by John Hunter, for example, 80 lectures, starting in October, 
running through until May, with lectures most days. William Hunter, 60 lectures, again from May to October, lectures most days. So compared to the private teachers, these lectures given at Surgeons Hall, even if the lecturer was competent, simply couldn't match the classes being given by the private teachers in terms of their quantity and their quality. And of course, there was no opportunity in these public lectures for the students to actually do any dissecting themselves. So the best they could hope for would be to go along and watch, whereas in the private schools they were being encouraged to dissect bodies and gain some practical, some hands-on experience. Now, despite the fact that the lectures weren't that good for the medical practitioners, their does seem to have been a quite strong attention on the part of the company of surgeons to fulfilling the other part of their contract, that these dissections should be public. And in contrast to the lectures, which were rather uncommon, the exposure of bodies to a public audience was rather more frequent. So it was the public, as much as surgeons, that these occasions were aimed at. And this is very different to the way in which anatomy dissection was practiced even at the Barber Surgeons Company in the years before the split. Although there was an invited audience allowed in to those lectures, the idea of inviting in the public generally doesn't seem to have held true. At the Company of Surgeons, however, the public were allowed into the lectures, not just to see the bodies, but into the lectures until the 1760s, again occasionally after that, but even after the public was stopped coming into the lectures because of the noise and tumult that they caused, they were still allowed in before and afterwards to see the dissected body. I think in making the dissections publicly accessible, the surgeons benefited from the terms of the Murder Act, because dissection was made a specific punishment for murder rather than a more general and random punishment inflicted on any kind of um, executed criminal, there was less sympathy for those who were being dissected. And as a result, there was less trouble surrounding the dissections at Surgeons Hall. There were occasions when the surgeons ran into bother in getting hold of bodies, sometimes actually when they tried to get hold of extra bodies. So in 1768, for example, there weren't any murderers being hanged. They tried to get hold of a forger instead, and they were beaten back by the crowd. The assumption seems to have been it was okay to take the bodies of murderers, but don't try and, trust and push your luck getting hold of anybody else. The same year, a crowd of Irish lightermen protested against the dissection of two of their fellows, and they besieged the hall, starting a lament outside. Didn't stop the company giving the lectures, but I think it made them rather more cautious about the way in which they were done. And in 1771, again, soldiers were called out to protect the bodies of Henry Stroud and Robert Campbell as they were brought from the execution site in Bethnal Green to the hall. But this kind of trouble was comparatively rare. There are some mentions in the account books of efforts being made to strengthen the door of the theatre against the mob. But when you read it carefully, they weren't strengthening it against the mob trying to bash their way in. They were making a separate door so the mob could get in round the side and up into the theatre. And they put out iron spikes. But they didn't put the iron spikes on the front of the hall to stop people getting in. They put them around the railing of the public gallery because people were climbing over to get a better look. So the surgeons seem to have, tried to have accommodated 
public dissection within their hall. And it certainly seems to have been a very popular event. In contrast to the lectures which the surgeons were wont to cancel at the drop of a hat, they were very careful to ensure that they were seen to do their duty and carry on displaying the bodies of dissected murderers. When Emmanuel Pinto was executed in 1783, for example, they put a little notice in the newspapers. On account of the extreme heat of the weather, the body of the murderer executed yesterday will be exposed to public view no longer than this day, the 19th. The doors will open from 11 to 6. So it was too hot for them to give a lecture, but it didn't stop them throwing open the doors so people can have, come and have a gawp at the body of Emmanuel Pinto laid out on the table. And the more notorious the criminal, the greater the crowd. So when Elizabeth Brownrigg was executed, the lawyer Silas Neville went in to see her body and recorded in his diary he waited an hour to see her body at the hall because of the crowds of women and girls who blocked the staircase. And like many of these notorious criminals, Brownrigg's skeleton was preserved and mounted in a niche hanging around the hall. The more so, it was said, to perpetuate the heinousness of her cruelty in the minds of spectators. And I think even when there weren't dissections being given, Surgeon's Hall was open to the public, at least on some days, so people could go in and have a look around. And the idea was these skeletons preserved in the niches would carry on reminding people of the moral function of dissection. In 1779, the body of James Hackman attracted so great a crowd that no genteel person attempted to gain admittance as it was observed that caps, cardinals, gowns, wigs, hats, etc., were destroyed without regard to age, sex, or distinction. So the crowds would flock to these occasions. And similar numbers attended in 1786, when John Hogan was hanged at Newgate. And it was reported that the crowds of the lower rank of people who have attended for these three days passed at Surgeon's Hall to see the body of Hogan made the Old Bailey almost impassable from 11 o'clock to 2. And it wasn't simply the lower ranks that were attending. Among the vast concourse of people who came to see the body of Henrietta Radbourne in 1787, there were several persons of no mean appearance. Now, given they had this captive audience, if you like, what did the surgeons try and do with them? There were some occasions when we know that the surgeons used the lectures to try and tell the public about the value of anatomy. When George Arnaud de Roncille dissected the body of John Williamson in 1767, he gave a very stirring address to his audience. Anatomy is to a surgeon as a chart to a seaman. Without its assistance, the pilot loses his way. Without anatomy, the surgeon walks in the dark and at the very first step falls headlong down the precipice of error. But I think, by and large, attempts to display or portray these dissections as a benefit to surgeons, a benefit to medical science, were rather undermined by the punitive aspect of dissection attached to it under the Act. And the punitive aspects of dissection attached to it under the Act were undermined by the evident popularity amongst Londoners with coming to see these dissections, which made... John Tate's warning about the dread table and its moral import, I think, 
fall on rather deaf ears. A similar tone to Tate's was taken when the Earl Ferrers was dissected in 1760. And it was reported that the belly is laid open, the bowels taken away, the gentlemen who attended exhorted the spectators to guard against the direful effects of passion when even a nobleman of the first rank could not be exempted from the fatal consequences attending it. And the crowds that attended Pharaoh's execution showed that the appetite was not just for dissection, it was for the hanging as well. The same crowds that would flock to the hangings would then come along to see the dissected body afterwards. They formed part of this public spectacle of punishment in late 18th century London. And what the crowd sought from the occasion was neither anatomical enlightenment nor moral instruction, but the vicarious thrill of terror that came from seeing a dissected corpse. Or better still, a corpse revived. That was what everyone hoped to see when they came to Surgeon's Hall. They thought that because of, in 1740 there was a very famous case when William Jewell woke up on the dissecting table at the Barber Surgeon's Company. He was taken back. He wasn't taken back and hung again. He was, his sentence was commuted to transportation. But William's, William Jewell's account continued to circulate throughout the late 18th century. It became one of these popular tropes in literature, graphic satire, drama, the idea of the corpse that was dissected but wasn't really dead. And it was that kind of vicarious thrill that the spectators were longing for when they went to Surgeon's Hall. They didn't get it, unfortunately. There was no body that revived at Surgeon's Hall in the second half of the 18th century. But there was a lot of excitement when Robert Greenstreet was dissected and his eyes opened, although the body was dead, said the papers, rather disappointed, I think. The sense of nervous tension that gripped the atmosphere was demonstrated in 1787 when Henrietta Radbourne's body was on show. And the newspapers pick up the story. During the time on Saturday, the public were admitted at Surgeon's Hall to view the body of Henrietta Radbourne. One of the skeletons, which was placed in a niche, fell down and caused a consternation better conceived than described. The women fainted. The men were frightened. In a short time, the place was soon cleared. And it's evident, too, that the solemnity of these occasions was not always encouraged by the servants the company of surgeons. In 1779, the London Gazetteer complained about the indecent behavior of the servants who sprayed visitors with water, or possibly something worse, as they made their way up the stairs to the public gallery. If anyone's been to Madame Tussauds, uh, not Madame Tussauds, the London Dungeon, uh, they have, or they used to have, uh, an execution scene from the French Revolution. And at the moment the guillotine comes down, the lights go out and they spray warm water over the crowd. And I think this was the effect that the Surgeon's Hall servants were aiming for with their audiences. They were crammed into this tight and dark staircase. Now, the genteel visitors who attended these occasions were at great pains to point out that they weren't going there out of a sense of vicarious enjoyment, um, although this didn't actually stop them going along. Silas Neville, for example, described the body of Mrs. Brownrigg as a most shocking sight and went on, I wish I had not seen it. How loathsome our vile bodies are when separated from the soul. Although the fact he later trained as a surgeon and studied anatomy suggests that he perhaps wasn't quite as horrified as his diary makes out. 
Amongst those who were distressed by the sight of James Hackman's body was the fencing master, Henry Angelo, who recounted his tale as follows. On our way home, we, as we were passing the Old Bailey, curiosity prompted us to go to Surgeon's Hall. Well, they weren't going to go there. They were just passing by, and they just thought they might pop in. Where the body of Hackman was taken for dissection. Having been placed on a large table, an incision had been made in his stomach, and the flesh was spread over on each side. On leaving the place, we retired to Dolly's Chop House. Our first dish was pork chops, and the sight I had witnessed produced such an impression on my mind that not only did I reject them in disgust, but I have never been able to eat pork chops since. <laughs> Poor Henry Angelo. While he was lamenting his loss of appetite, for others the horrific thrill of dissection was rather more damaging. In 1765, the public advertiser reported that Mrs. Salkeld, wife of Mr. Salkeld, mathematical instrument maker in Smithfield, went with her sister to the surgeon's theatre in the Old Bailey to view the bodies of the three murderers who lay dissected there. But she was so greatly affected by the sight that on her return home, she was seized with convulsive fits and died the same evening. So in some cases, the shock of seeing these dissected bodies could be fatal in itself. And it was this, I think, that made it such a potent attraction to the public. And it was their evident delight in scenes of gratuitous gore that worried many commentators. On the dissection of Asher and Levi Vile in 1771, one newspaper said, the mob at Surgeon's Hall was immense. What a strange curiosity is it that impels the people of England, who are famed for their humanity, to delight in spectacles so shocking to the feelings of the humane. Some commentators questioned whether the practice of exposing the dissected bodies might actually be counterproductive. When John Hogan was hanged in 1786, it was reported that exposing the bodies of murderers has not appeared to have had the salutary effect expected by the Act of Parliament, but being frequently repeated tends to harden the minds of the vulgar and familiarize them with spectacles of horror. Again, the same kind of criticism that was used to describe the surgeons in Hogarth's reward of cruelty. Despite all this, though, the surgeons persevered. Why? I don't know. I think partly a sense of duty, a sense that they were fulfilling the terms of the Murder Act, a sense that as a corporation they had to be seen as anatomical. They had to have some association with this section to try and balance the growing reputation of these private teachers, many of whom were, of course, members of the company but working on their own account and not under the company's umbrella. Whatever the reason the company's dedication to public display was to have catastrophic consequences. It almost led to the downfall of the company in the 1790s. In 1796, faced with a decrepit theatre and an equally dismal reputation, the company decided to submit a bill to Parliament calling for the creation of a new College of Surgeons and at the same time, they moved from the Old Bailey to a new premise on the south side of Lincoln's Inn Fields. The two moves combined to calamitous effect. Their new neighbours were outraged when the bodies of Francis Dunn and William Arnold, hanged at Newgate on the 5th of December 1796, were brought 
to leafy Lincolns in fields for dissection. The dissection, of course, attracted an enthusiastic crowd. One of the changes that had been made over the course of the second half of the century was the executions had moved from Tyburn to Newgate. Newgate Prison was where the prisoners were kept before the execution. As a result of that, this long parade that had taken place up until 1783, when the condemned were taken from Newgate to Tyburn, were hanged, their bodies were then brought back to Newgate and given to the company of surgeons. That had stopped in 1783, and instead the bodies were hanged outside Newgate, taken back inside the prison, taken through a covered walkway and into Surgeons Hall. So actually by moving to Lincoln's in fields, unintentionally the company was reviving this tradition of taking dead bodies through the streets of London. And the crowd followed the bodies, stood outside the new surgeon's hall, waiting for the dissected bodies to be displayed. And the neighbours complained to the newspapers. The Telegraph wrote, the inhabitants of Lincoln's in fields and its vicinity do not find themselves under any particular obligation to the corporation of surgeons for the removal of their theatre to that quarter. To view the exposed bodies of murderers in Lincoln's fields is now considered by the inhabitants of Clerkenwell as a polite lounge. And clearly the inhabitants of Clerkenwell were not welcome in Lincoln's in fields. And the company of surgeons were doubtless lowering the tone of the neighborhood. And being well-hilled and well-connected, the neighbors used their influence to scupper the surgeon's bill in Parliament. In the House of Lords, Lord Thurlow decried the company as the most useless set of learned men in London and lambasted their dissections as a filthy, and most beastly nuisance, the surgeon's bill was roundly rejected. And for two years, the future of the company of surgeons lay in the balance. The company was reduced to carrying out its dissections in a stables in Bridge Street, a variety of temporary premises when uh, Maria Fippo's body was dissected and exposed to public view at the Black Horse Inn in the Old Bailey in 1797, the Times decried it as a scandal that the company possessed no decent place for the inspection of deceased criminals. And they had to look for a variety of locations where they could fulfill their obligations under the law. At some stage, they may even have planned to build a new surgeon's hall. This is a plan that we have in our archives, and we're not sure exactly when it was drawn, but it shows what appears to be a company of surgeon's hall on uh, New Bridge Street. So at the junction of the, where the street led down to Blackfriars Bridge, close to the Old Bailey. Now, it's not a building that was ever built, and this plan appears to post-date the building of the Surgeons Hall in the Old Bailey and predate the building of the, company of the College of Surgeons here in Lincoln's in Fields. So this suggests that perhaps they were considering a worst-case option and looking to move back, retreat back, to nearer the Old Bailey for Surgeons Hall in the 1790s. Faced with this ignominious retreat, it wasn't public dissection that saved the company of surgeons, but private dissection. Salvation came in the form of John Hunter's museum. John Hunter, the great private teacher, died in 1793, left his magnificent museum collection with a request that it be offered to the government, purchased and preserved for the nation. 
The government was persuaded to do this by the lobbying of Hunter's friends and patrons. And in 1799, 15,000 pounds was paid to secure the collection. The government cast around for a number of institutions to see who might take it. The Royal Society turned it down. The College of Physicians turned it down. Eventually, the Company of Surgeons seized the opportunity and took John Hunter's Museum. And Hunter's Museum became the centerpiece for the new Royal College of Surgeons on this site in Lincoln's Inn Fields. And although it's changed much over the years, we still have John Hunter's collection on display in the Hunterian Museum upstairs. It's still John Hunter's statue you walk past as you come into the college. John Hunter is credited as the man who made surgeons gentlemen. And it was certainly John Hunter's museum, a place for displaying anatomy as a genteel science that helped overcome the stain attached to the horrific spectacle a public dissection at Surgeons Hall. Thank you very much. Well, thank you very much to Simon for a fascinating lecture. Um, we're not actually going to take open questions from the floor, but Simon is happy to answer any questions that you might have um, at the end of this evening. So if you wanted to come and see him in just a couple of minutes, then please do so. Just before you go, to say... Um, that there is one final lecture to come in this series. Um, it's going to be on Thursday the 12th of June and it's going to be delivered by Professor Vishy Mahadavan who is the um, Professor of Surgical Anatomy and Barber Compa Barber's Company Reader in Anatomy here at the Royal College of Surgeons. And he's going to be speaking on anatomical dissection is it still relevant to surgical training? So bringing the series right back uh, up to the present day. Um, also, on a slightly more light-hearted note, to say that we have um, another chance for you to meet, maybe, the surgeon from the 16th, 17th century on Saturday, the 31st of May. For any of those, uh, those of you who haven't already uh, been to that performance, it's the barber surgeon leeches, lancets and bloodletting and that's going to be upstairs in the Hunterian Museum. It's free, it's really great for children. If you've got people you want to bring along and see the museum, I heartily recommend it. And I'd also like to add the two things. Please do fill out your evaluation forms before you leave. We do read them, we type them in and we take notice of what you say. And also to say that the library is going to be open again now for about the next um, 20, 25 minutes where you can see a material, some of which has been shown in tonight's lecture, archives and other material from the collections that relate to the dissection of criminals and to um, the public dissections that were carried out in the 18th century. So if you'd like to join me once again and thank Simon for a really fascinating talk this evening. Thank you.